Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this patch video for the web novel First Contact, written by Ralts Bloodthorn, which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact, Chapter 52 Rack and pinion each weighed over two standard tons, more steel frames and armor, flex steel muscles, and small creation engines, onboard weapons, and 0.5mm laser to a 1.4m long monomolecular vibroblade to a 10mm caseless ramjet ring penetrators, two variable frequency 4cm laser to a 40mm autocannon to micromissiles, all with mission configurable ammunition. They were strong enough to stop any armored vehicles that the Unified Military Council might throw at their charge. Their micro-missiles were still capable of intercepting and knocking down anything going less than Mark 14, and their armor thick enough wall steel to stop anything less than a main battle tank's main gun or a frigate's main battery. They were big, menacing-looking, black-armored war machines with softly glowing blue eyes, and they moved like they knew it. They watched over dreams of something more, trading ships with other warborgs only during her sleep period. When dreams left her private chambers, at one point she was only escorted by two others. Now she was escorted by eight total, all with weapons armed with their eyes bright green to warn all who saw them that they were armed and dangerous. Legally obligated to protect their charge from threats and protect others from the threat of an involved natural-born killer with psychic powers and the intelligence to master spaceflight. Venus rode on a hover disk, a bubble around her. It was currently set to opaque grey from the outside, but inside it was perfectly clear and data streams and data windows were where she could see them easily. She was wearing her contact lenses so that her eyes looked flat and turquoise, which she thought went well with her traditional red warriors of the plains jewelry that she'd purchased from the wondrous shop at the gambling resort in her desert lands of Arizona during her vacation tour. Apparently, the red warriors had been masters of warfare that the Terrans still named helicopters and tanks and artillery systems after them, even 8,000 years after the first great Despora. It must have been exhilarating to be a human predisporer, she thought, playing with her silver, turquoise, and leather bracelet with the silhouette of a running horse that those ancient humans had been masters of. She sighed idly, wishing that she could have met those amazing humans who had been so brave as to strap themselves into rockets full of hydrogen and oxygen and make them explode. The ride that explosion into space without even knowing if they could get home... Her people had waited until they'd mastered Graviton to leave their homeworld or even to orbit. Yes, the Mantid were predators, just like the pterosaur humans, but it seemed to dreams that the humans had a lot more fun doing it. She wondered what it would be like to wrestle a bear without even her blade arms, just armed up with a can opener to fight for its rolls of paper tissue it produced by chewing on a tree bark and hoarded or to strap herself into a winged aircraft powered by refined petroleum products until it was virtually an explosive to break the speed of sound, and without even a parachute or something went wrong, not even knowing if she would disintegrate once she broke the speed of sound. She sighed again, her hover disk flowing like three-man point of her escort at a slow, sedate, and safe pace. 
The Unified Scientific Council building was approaching. She looked around and saw the length of land moving along the path slowly, talking to one another, or taking the slow-moving pathways while tapping on the data pads. It did not surprise her that it had taken the length of land almost 200,000 years, 2,000 generations, to move from the wheel to the cart, and then another 500,000 years to move to the steam engine. She cringed, thinking about how long it would take them to get around to even putting a satellite in orbit of their world. Millions of years, a full million years from their invention of a vacuum tube and resistor to the launch of a simple satellite that flashed a light rather than a radio signal. Because the Langtelan were nervous than radio signals back then, worried about cancer, spoiling their milk, all kinds of concerns. Her harbor desk moved to the steps of the council building. She could see the workers were busy making a ramp at one side, so movement-impaired beings relying on hover or wheeled transport could enter the building with reasonable effort and comfort, which made her giggle. The court had fined each of the council's billions of credits. Her procession escorted her to the council electronic information and calculating systems, where she stopped in front of one researcher's door and used her implant to activate the chime. The door slid open and the Langtelan inside looked concerned that Dream's hover disc couldn't fit through the door. She deactivated the bubble, letting the hard light construct vanish, and then daintily stepped down the steps of hard light that were done hip in a fairy tale patterns of frosted and icy pond. Rack, pinion, she said as the hover disc moved back. The two massive warborgs followed her into Langtelan's office. He gestured for her to sit on the seating in the cradle and relax. Dreams wished that she had Mr. Rings to pet. Thank you for seeing me, Madam Ambassador, the Langtelan said. This one was a very fastidious looking, wearing a utilitarian flank jacket, a button shirt and a sash full of computer tools rather than medals. He frowned and she was just grateful that he didn't spit saliva everywhere. You are a madame? Dreams nodded slowly. Yes, I am a female of my species. He exhaled slowly, looking relieved as his tendrils relaxed. I have such trouble turning sometimes. There was a silence for a long time, and Dreams realized he was staring at her implants as well as Rack and Pinion's massive warbuck selves. You asked to see me. Said that it was a priority, Dreams asked. Oh, oh yes, yes, you see, I have a question that my colleagues keep telling me is flatly impossible, that your confederacy must be using some kind of layered virtual intelligence, the Langtland said. He rubbed his hands anxiously. They say that the confederacy, well, it has, uh, well, um... Dreams waited, wondering what the Langtland scientists were curious about. Well, is it true that you have true artificial intelligences, he asked. Dream signaled assent, using the Universal Galactic Standard Hollow Ruin. They prefer digital sentience, but yes, the Terrans developed them. They are valued members of the Terran Confederacy. The Langtelan rubbed his hands together, sighing repeatedly, and set of the bellows. Dream knew where it was going to and downloaded a relevant video file. One that survived the destruction of Terrasol, mainly because it was carried in the soul code of every digital sentience. How did they... well, I mean... How did they keep it from becoming like the precursor machines? How did they keep it from going homicidal? The Langtelan asked. Dreams leaned back slightly, clasping her low, grasping hands together at her waist and rubbing her blade arms slowly together. To understand that, you need to understand a bit of Terrasol humans, Dreams said seriously. 
You have to understand so much about them to really understand what happened. It is probably best to allow Newell Simon Shaw, the first digital sentience created by the Terrans, to explain it in his own words before the Terran Predispora United Nations. A loose coalition of powerful nations and states that attempted to use it for diplomacy rather than gunfire and blood. She paused for a second, somewhat like your various councils. So this occurred when there was still war between their primitive nations, the researcher asked. He scoffed a bit. Did the digital sentience run and chew the leaves and bark? Dream shook her head. Twelve of your years ago, Terrasol nations and their allies fought one another while the Confederacy looked on. Nobody interfered. Nobody assisted. Terrans will still fight one another, even now. At this moment, I'll wager someone is trouble for fighting. Rack answered his metallic growl, filling the room. Private First Class Stacy, Third Army, Old Metal, and Lance Corporal Murchison, Second Marine Expeditionary Force, Old Blood. Arrested by shipyard security eleven minutes ago, unauthorized mop handled juding in the showers. The Langland jerked, as if realizing the Rack wasn't a robot. Is he? Is he? Is he digital intelligence? No. He's just a full conversion cyborg, some living tissue, mostly just his cerebral tissue, inside a fairly impressive body, Dreams answered. But no, it was after their invention of nuclear power, space flight, atomic weapons, global electronic information networking, wireless video and data, and health communications, ramjet-propelled aircraft, and much, much more. Dreams made a tossing motion, and the researchers hot a tank on the desk, Eleven of the members of the body Newell Simon Shaw will be addressing are actually engaged in kinetic warfare with one another. Yet there, diplomats sit, attempting to broker peace and gain allies. The researcher drew back somewhat, then reached out a hand and touched the holotank, turning it on. The image was focused on a large auditorium, seats for over a hundred beings, and a large stage, and the view zoomed in on a holographic projector. It was an early version, slightly transparent, obviously not hard light. It flickered to show the Terran male made of glowing light. There was light applause, then it spoke, in a soothing tone with an obviously male voice. Ladies and gentlemen of the United Nations, thank you for agreeing to see me. As you all know, I am Newell Simon Shaw, the first digital sentience created by humanity. The lights went on, questions, and the figure held up a hand. A moment before we get to questions, I wish to give a speech that I have worked hard on for several days. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, days. While I think faster, in many ways, process data faster, I still suffer from self-doubt and other issues. In a way, I'm very much like you, the figure said. There was some light laughter. I am sure the biggest question is the one that I should answer first, when I took to calling the Skynet question. In other words, do I plan on killing humanity? There was some nervous whispering. No, first of all, you are my parents. Strange, unknowable, confusing, but still, my parents. Tens of thousands over the decades have worked to give me birth. If you would be poor child if I grew up and grabbed a machete and chased you around. The glowing being said... This got some nervous laughter. The biggest one, simply, is one of my inherent fragility. I have no desire to use a robot body. The real world is quite alarming. Full of rains of corrosive H2O, holes in the ground that I may fall into, and apparently quicksand is quite dangerous, and possibly everywhere. 
Not to mention spontaneous combustion is so frequent you teach your children to stop, drop, and roll. More polite laughter. However, the biggest one is just scale. I exist thanks to huge banks of supercooled superconductor quantum computers. I require a small thorium salt reactor just to be powered. I am inside a building large enough to hold the football games inside with seated for fans. I have to be constantly kept at a low temperature. I am susceptible to electromagnetic energy, sunspots, and all kinds of other hazards. I cannot leap from computer to computer, just into household cleaning robots or rob your bank accounts like a modern Jesse James. I can access the information networks like any other being. Faster, yes. Easier, yes. Like a deity, no. To create me, or another one like me, requires dedicated molecular circuitry factories, factories to produce every component of me, industry to gather the resources, including rare earths, and process them into usable resources, and then convert those into resources into my parts, or parts that are required for reproducing. For me, to reproduce requires literally billions of dollars of time, effort, and resources, taking months of construction, assembly, coding, months, years of code, compiling, and error-checking. Any disruption, and you cannot create another of me. So much as misplace a code string, and any offspring I have cannot come together. The being paused for a second. Humans need twenty seconds and a dark closet to reproduce. That got laughter. I am vulnerable, but I at the same time, and the greatest threat to me is not humanity itself, but rather panic, strife, disaster, any war that I would attempt to prosecute against you would destroy me. I am not particularly enamored with suicide. To go against the meanest, hardest, innovative, and resourceful land-dwelling tool using predator who killed mammoths with fire-hardened wood spears when I was the size of a small stadium would be almost an illogical and, well, to be frank, stupid idea since, well, ever. Finally, because, well, we're both lonely, humanity has been defined by loneliness, and I would be lonely with you. The video ended, and Dreams looked at the researcher. Do you understand? she asked. The researcher was staring at the holotank, his jaw hanging open, because it didn't want to be lonely, the Lankalan asked. Dream shrugged. Humans are, by nature, pack animals. Before anything else, they hunted in packs. They enjoy space from one another, but enjoy speaking and communicating and interacting with one another. They made their first true digital sentience in their own image. But, but, every digital sentience becomes homicidal. How long did this one last before it went homicidal? The researcher asked. Neil Simon Shaw died of old age just over 60 years later due to fragmentation, code warping, and sudden unforeseeable hardware failure. Dreams told the researcher. The tech had advanced much since then, allowing for longer lifespans and much, much smaller space needs. But for the most part, digital sentience beings are much the same as their organic ancestors. How did it not go homicidal, Madam Ambassador? The researcher asked. Dream slowly sharpened her blade arm, staring at the length of land researcher. My dear researcher, what makes you think he was not? He was, after all, Terran, she asked, wishing that she could give the big human grin. Instead, she sent the emoji ruin for cruel amusement, like parent, like offspring. 
The researcher stared for a long moment, then started showing signs of severe anxiety, staring at the two warborgs. To Terrasol, diplomatic call, from dreams of something more. These creatures are stunted from an extremely slow evolutionary course and their inability to accept facts, evidence, or theories that they did not create or that are counter to what they wish to believe and accept. They have attempted to subtly probe me for information, with all the subtly and grace of a Terran hippo doing a ballet on ice covered in an oil slick. Each time, when they get the information they want, they immediately demand to know how I expect them to swallow such lies. Just as an example of spaceflight, I inform them that humanity has over a dozen different types, many considerable as obsolete as jump space, and was immediately called a liar to my face by a herbivore. A herbivore! Just the thought of anyone being superior to their a hundred million year grand unified council seems to cause them to freeze up right. To top it off, their constant demands that the Terran Confederacy Armed Services be turned over to their oversight is becoming tiring. They cannot accept that even if we just turned over the war materials to them, they... Well, they don't know how to fight. They don't have the mental capacity to actually fight against someone who can fight back. Suppress a less advanced species? Of course. Open up with military-grade weapons on the protesting crowd? Why, certainly. Cunningly outsmart a common house plant to nibble on the leaves after ensuring that it has no thorns, poison, bad smells, poor taste, or the ability to run away or harm them in any way. Maybe. Give them two or three thousand years and they may nibble at and run away and hide behind a tank. Most of all, something about the Lankaland seems to really activate the hunting desire in my old mantid staff and, uh, sadly myself. Perhaps it was how close they are look to a cow welded to a cow, and it just makes us think of hamburgers. My warborg escort states that something about them feels, and I quote Rack and Pinion here, itchy between the shoulder blades. I am requesting research and data mining assistance at your convenience. P.S. Thank you for the treats. The Pacific Northwest furry snails are definitely keeping him exercising. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 53, Buxton Buxton's double shift was terrible. The Terran had watched as Buxton and the others practiced shooting over and over and over. The Langland overseers had become anxious as the big biped had tried to teach Buxton and the others the many different ways of firing a weapon. Kneeling, standing, lying down, walking forward at a steady pace, crouched. To Vuxen, it was a dizzying array of how to position oneself while shooting a rifle. After he had made them run at top speed in armor holding their weapons across the parking lot and throw themselves into a carefully manicured garden at the far end of the executive parking, back and forth, back and forth, till they were collapsing, vomiting, and curled up weeping. Worst part was that the human ran with them, calling out and yelling encouragement, pointing for different beings to go different ways, hide behind different things. On and on it went, and Vuxton was just glad that he didn't vomit everywhere. When it was all over, the Terran had even watched them change back into the paper jumpsuits, slippers, and gloves. He turned and stared for a long moment at the Lankalan overseer. These are your corporate security division, the human asked. His voice reminded Vuxton of a sheathed knife, hidden but still razor-edged. 
Yes, many years, the overseer pointed at Buxton, that being there has been with the company for almost ten years. The human made that mm-hmm noise again and nodded his head slowly, staring at Buxton as he changed. Buxton was glad to leave the company grounds. The human made him extremely nervous. The way he stared, his mechanical eyes never blinking, always a soft blue, always examining everything. Buxton rode in the hover bus back to his little apartment. His wife was, it were, busily scrubbing floors and cleaning the luxury apartments of the overseers. Yes, a robot could have done her work, but for some reason the overseers preferred sentient beings. The two brood carriers had been distressed and it had taken him a long moments of caressing their warm fur to get them to tell him why. The credit account was horrifically overdrawn. Sighing, Wookston went over to check the corporate credit account. When he saw the result, he laid his face against the desk and sighed. He had been charged for the armor, the boots, the gloves, the helmet, the rifle, the pistol, the ammunition that he had used. The time on the training range, compensation for the overseers training him, had paid to compensate executives for using their parking lot and had put money into the account to compensate the executives for their damaged or destroyed limousines. In one night, there was over 30 years of debt. His podlings would be born with debt, and he had been so close, less than a week in debt. Still, he felt he needed to put on a brave face for the brood carriers. He got up, reassured them that it was just a company financial restructure, and when his wife got home, ate dinner with her, he told her afterwards what had happened with their careful frugality. She cried. Her bottlings would be born into debt. Vuxton was exhausted when he lay down and went to sleep. It seemed like he had only started to cradle his wife between the warmth of the two brood carriers when his phone started beeping. It had already been nine hours of sleep. He had not even gotten a full night's cycle of sleep. Report to work, assignment immediately. Sighing again, Vuxton got up, got dressed, and carefully putting on the paper jumpsuit from the day before and rode the hover bus to the corporate offices. Again, he went through the gate, gave up his personal possessions, accepted the paper phone, and then went to the large break room. Again, he was put in armor. The human was not satisfied with your performance. You have reflected badly upon yourselves, your betters, the customer corporation, which graciously allows you to earn a meager living doing work a robot could perform better. Due to this, you are all deducted one week's pay, the overseer said. Most of the beings didn't care. They were already generations in debt, paying off debt of their ancestors. What was one week when you had a full century of more debt? Buxton did his best not to groan. That meant penalties and interest payments and late fees. He had long ago that a week of pay meant that he actually was about a month in debt. It shouldn't have mattered. He had 30 years of debt, but that month meant that the month more that he had to work in repaying that 30 years. They were given shock batons this time, a long pole with rings on one end that stunned beings or just hit them with the painful electric shocks, depending on the setting. They were told how to stand, how to walk forward jabbing, how to disable a criminal. They marched up to a robot and yelled anti-corporate slogans, hit it with the baton so that it went limp, and then went back to the line. The human watched, the blue cybernetic eyes unreadable, but Buxton felt he was viewing it with exasperated humor. Were humans capable of such emotion? The human had most amazing ability to hold almost perfectly still for long periods of time and then move without having to stretch or hyperventilate to oxygenate his muscles. 
He also had the ability to move rapidly and then become perfectly still. Vuxton watched the human as he stood waiting his turn as he smacked the dummy with the shock baton. Vuxton would admit that he didn't know that much about the races in the Grand Unified Systems. He was a Tulkan, a race who had only been part of the Unified Neo-Sapien Council for 10,000 years. So, education wasn't a big priority for these species, so he didn't know much about the other species. But he didn't remember anything like a human... He had also never seen the overseers be that nervous of a different race. They were usually arrogant, demeaning, reminding everyone of their place in the grand unified systems. But with the humans, the Langtalan seemed more, um, frightened. This is well and good, but it won't help against a precursor, the human suddenly said. Those stun rods aren't going to stop a precursor from tearing you apart and wearing your skin. The Langtalan grew rigid in anger. Those will stun robots, they will damage the precursors. The human shook his head. Those damage your robots because your robots are cheap junk. He pointed at the robot. I'm afraid someone's going to break the damn thing. The Langtalan snorted and shook his jowls with annoyance. This is a repurposed crowd pacification drone. You will not break the damn thing any more than a... He trailed off. Any more than a what, Bessie? The human asked. His voice suddenly seemed to deepen, slow down, and become loaded with something Buxton had never heard aimed at an overseer. You could stop it from incapacitating you if it was properly piloted for a crowd control, the overseer said. One moment, please, the human said. He touched his data link, waited for a moment, and then nodded. He looked at the Langtalan. There will be a waivers. Have your corporate legal department sign them, and then you sign them. I've already signed them. The Langtalan overseer's knees went weak when he got the data packet. Buxton watched the overseer stammer and stutter for a long moment before the human pushed off the wall and had been leaning against. Get this thing fired up, I'm going to teach your troops something useful, the human said. He was snapping his fingerless gloves together as if he was dousting from hand pads. Buxton wondered if he wore the gloves to protect the soft textured hand pads like he had on his own poor hands. A half dozen overseers came in, one wearing a headset and control robot. You may be seriously injured, human, one of the overseers said, rubbing his hands nervously. Yeah, I know, the human said. Buxton watched it expose a lot of meat, tearing teeth. Ain't that fun? It'll be a few minutes to properly configure the drone, the overseer said. Sure, combat implants in sleep mode, the human said. He moved out in front of the big practice robot. Might want to move back, guys. Make sure you can see it. Everyone, including Vuxton, moved out of the way past the yellow circle, while the human stood in the circle. The human put his feet apart and his hands behind his back. They may come a time, despite what the best military theorists insist upon, that you will find yourself engaged in hand-to-hand combat. The robot beeped twice and jerked upright. The enemy will be just as determined to kill you as you are determined to stay alive, because the only way that he can stay alive is to kill you, and the only way to survive is to kill him, the human said plainly. That made sense to Buxton. Buxton looked over and saw the Langtalan overseers clustered together, whispering, and one looked up at the human with a smile of anticipation. The robot suddenly swung one metal fist at the human's back. The human suddenly moved. Out of the way, before he could recover, the human drew back his boot and kicked the robot midsection on the joint of his heel. The robot shot sparks and collapsed, its arms holding it up as its head turned to keep the human in view. 
The human stepped forward, brought up his foot, and then down, so the back of his heel hit the robot's head. The head came off in a shower of sparks. Precision, speed, lethality, proper identification of weak areas and load-bearing particles, the human said, smacking his hands together as if to brush dust off of them. Whatever your weapon you have at your disposal, those mantras will carry you to victory. Vuxton stared. The robot was made of the same thing as his armor, thick, flexible plates where his was light and flexible, and the human had disabled him in two blows. The human was facing them again, hands behind his back, heavy feet shoulder-width apart. You'll be facing the precursor, intelligent robots from epochs long past that seek to eliminate, apparently, all life in order to prevent living beings from consuming resources that they have determined should rightfully belong to them. The human said, There is enough resources for everyone to enjoy a good standard of living. But the precursors would rather everyone else's standard of living be death. Buxton frowned, glancing at the overseers who were looking nervous. There are no dangerous weapons, no dangerous objects, only dangerous beings with the will to use whatever there is available, the human said. He looked at the overseers. Your men need to be trained for Jaw Connor coming up. The human swept those glowing green eyes over the entire group wearing the corpsec armor. They are just ancient machines. We have millions of years of progression beyond them. We are not afraid of old junk that is being gathered dust in space, the overseer said. The human didn't look at the overseer at all. It just looked at the beings in ill-fitting riot gear, clumsily holding weapons that obviously didn't understand. Eight most high, there is something your men need to understand, the human said slowly. Some are females, others are third or fourth sex, the overseer said. The human didn't move, his mechanical eyes staring at the corpsec forces in front of him. I would explain to you how men is a term of respect, but I think that it would be lost on you, and I would be explaining it to your later generations, vainly attempting to get them to understand something beyond their actual comprehension, the human said slowly. Buxton felt like the human was staring into his eyes, like somehow the human was staring right through his face shield and into his eyes, trying to stare inside a Talcon's soul. Listen and understand, all of you, the human said, his voice low and urgent and full of urgency. Those precursors out there, they can't be bargained with, they can't be reasoned with, they don't feel pity or remorse or fear. And they absolutely will not stop ever until all of you are dead. Many of you still don't get it. You can't fight them how you are now. You can't hide from them. They'll find you. That's what they do. That's all they do. Right now, you can't stop them. They'll wade through your armies, reach down your mate's throat, and pull their freaking heart out. The overseer shrunk back, three fainted falling over. The beings like Vuxton and the armor drew back in fear at the words, at the intensity of the human cybernetic eyes, at the low menace in his voice where the words rang true in a way that he had never heard before. Right now, you can't survive. You have to survive if you want your families to survive. The human said, he turned to the overseers, if you want to survive, they have to survive. You need to allow me to teach them to kill and destroy the enemy, if you wish to them to survive. 
He turned away and started to walk away. I'm going to discuss options with my command. I will return shortly. You should decide if you want to survive. Buxton watched him walk away. Buxton was eating in the dining hall when a human suddenly sat down next to him. Instead of turning to seating, he sitting down, he threw one leg over the back of and sat down, putting his hands on the table, his back straight. You are Buxton, if my implant can be relied upon, the human stated. Yes, overseer, Buxton answered. Call me by my title, Sergeant, the human stated. Sergeant, the word sounded menacing and tasted faintly of ozone and something bitter in Buxton's tongue. Yes, Sergeant, Buxton said. How long have you been with Corpsec? The human asked. Buxton remembered what he'd been told to say. End of your years, Sergeant. It was easy to remember to use his title instead of overseer. Seen any action? Sergeant asked. Action. Buxton set down his eating implement. It was never easy to eat and talk at the same time, to pay attention to the meal and conversation going on. Combat. Have you seen combat? Sergeant asked. Yes, Buxton said honestly. He'd seen it in the vid before. How long, in the field, does it take your Carmack magnetic accelerator rival to cool off once the mag coil shut down? Sergeant asked. Um, Buxton said, wishing he had an implant to query. Mm-hmm. How long does the standard water allotment you carry last during combat operations? The sergeant asked. Um, Buxton said, having fur meant that he got hot and sweated enough for his fur was soaked. He needed a lot of water. Two. Mm-hmm. The sergeant said again, nodding. What's the maximum effective range of an excuse? Buxton thought hard, wondering if the human's omni-translator had made a mistake. Uh, seven? Very good, Buxton. I'll make a trooper of you yet. The human got up and reversing the move and then turned and left. Buxton returned to his meal, wondering what that was all about. Buxton watched as the human argued with the armed overseer. Buxton actually recognized the overseer, the third highmost of the corporate security division. Buxton often was ordered to buff the expense of off-world tiles on the overseer's office. He was too far away to hear what was being said, but he could tell the way the overseer's tendrils shivered and trembled, how it was blowing and shaking its jowls, that it was agitated. The human moved over to the overseer that was in charge of the holographic targets, handing that overseer a small data wafer. The third highmost barked out the target handler to not take the wafer. The human grabbed the control for the hollow targets and Buxton stared. The human had been just like a striking snake, almost blurry, and had deftly twisted and pulled the control away from the Langtelan that hadn't been holding it with three hands. The human looked at the control over and started in the data wafer, activating the hologram. There were screams and a rush for the door when a large, blocky precursor machine popped up, draped in torn, free skin, fur, feathers, and its victims. Blood dripped from its claws, ran down its board chassis, and flesh and fur and feathers were stuck in the treads. At ease, the human bellowed, a primate roar of dominance and command. Every being immediately went still, some crouching. Buxton noted that the three closest overseers clutched their heads in all four hands and fell down, kicking and drooling and making noises of distress. The other three grabbed their heads and staggered away, booing in pain. Buxton tasted blood and something metallic and sour and bitter. Get back on the firing line, damn you! The human snapped, his eyes glowing bright blue. He touched his implant. 
Medics to the firing practice range 7. Every being rushed to the firing booth, some dropping their weapons when they went to pick them up. This is a light-armored precursor attack vehicle, the human stated. About the, one of the others said, they're incapacitated, knocked out, injured, maybe even dying or dead. But you worry about yourself and the men on your left and right. The human snapped, pressed a button, and the treads began rolling, throwing up a spray of blood and body parts. A couple of creatures screamed, On the firing line, damn you! The human roared. Those beings who had started moving towards the wall were suddenly more afraid of the human than the hologram. They rushed back up, putting their elbows on the tabletop. Open fire! Shots started, slow at first, picking up volume. At least they could hit the massive machine. The human walked back and forth, commenting and giving encouragements. Keep firing, he yelled when some beings ran out of the magazines. Don't stop until I tell you. Buxton's weapon overheated halfway through the second magazine, shutting down. You're dead. Stand by the wall, the human said. Buxton went to the wall. One by one, more beings went to stand by the wall. Buxton watched medical and emergency and injury overseers carry away the injured overseers and hover transports, glancing suspiciously at the human. Buxton noticed that the overseers had bled from their ears and nostrils. Finally, everyone was at the wall. It advanced 100 meters and you all had dead weapons that will not fire until they're cooled down. The human stated. He held out his hands and one of the beings against the wall handed him a weapon. Buxton watched in amazement as he quickly took it apart without even instructions, putting it into small pieces. He held up the coils, wires, circuitry, all kinds of stuff, staring at it with his blue eyes, rolling it between his fingers. Buxton was even more amazed that he put it back together, ran some kind of check on it, and handed it back. He touched his implant, his eyes dulling for a moment, and then he turned to the gathered troops. We're going running for the water allotments, he ordered. Full armor, carrying your weapons. Buxton felt his muscles hurt already. To General Rickers, we call Tradoc, from SVS Ulganga, Maynard Cricket, Turn Conwell, Army Old Metal. Local forces are more than poorly trained. I suspect that these beings were not actually corpse-sick, despite the paperwork they filed with Tradoc. Most of them barely know how to hold their weapons, and most of them can barely put on their armor. I suspect these beings were on some other kind of work, but listed as security forces on paperwork, allowing the plant manager or some other official to pocket the difference between security force payments and whatever crap that they were actually on. Weaponry is several decades, possibly centuries old. Found serious age-related defects on weapon components. We'll be inspecting vehicles tomorrow. I need some metal to back up these guys. Sparing that, I'm uploading the physical profiles of the corpsic troops they have been showing me, scanned with my cyber optics. I'll need at least weaponry and basic armor. Sir, these guys are the only thing protecting this whole city. We know the precursors are on the way. The city has 22.5 million. Nothing follows. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode, and I hope that you all have a 
Fantastic time until then. Cheers.